Welcome to the South Fellowship Podcast. Here at South Fellowship, we exist to help people live in the way of Jesus with the heart of Jesus. And wherever you're listening from today, we hope you're encouraged by this week's message. Good morning. Uh, my name's Ethan, like she said. I'm the youth and young adults pastor here at South. We have a youth section over here. Okay, that was medium. I promise they're cool, guys. Just, they're normally cool. Um, but yeah, so I'm the youth and young adults pastor. Um, and I really like my job here uh, because I used to have other jobs um, that I wasn't as good at. So I was a lifeguard for a while. How many of you have ever been a lifeguard before? Anyone? A couple of you? Yeah, okay, so the one thing that you know if you've been a lifeguard is that being a lifeguard is incredibly boring, right? Like, you're literally just sitting there and you're watching other people swim. Like, to me, watching other people, like, have a good time isn't that fun. So, so, so you're just, like, watching them swim. And what I would normally do uh, just to, like, burn time is I would just walk around the edge of the pool, right? Just, like, walk and walk, and do laps around the pool, and I was a lifeguard for two years, and this only happened two times when I was a lifeguard, when I was walking, and I would, like, just be thinking about things and zone out, and then just, like, one foot just goes off the edge of the pool, and it just <laughs> fell in, and then suddenly everybody in the pool, like, looks over, they're like, oh, the lifeguard went in, something's happening, someone's drowning, and it's like, no, the lifeguard just wasn't looking where he was going, and fell in, but, <laughs> um, but what made me even worse as a lifeguard, uh, if you could get worse than that, was I would, um, I would like, it was, it was a pool near here. It was a couple miles from here. Uh, I won't tell you what pool it was. I'll just tell you uh, it starts with an R and rhymes with smidge. But um, it's a little bit, so if you've been to that pool, uh, you know that there's this like big lap lane pool and they have two diving boards. They have the, um, the regular height diving board that's like three feet and then they have the high dive which is three meters, or if you're American, it's 10 feet, and so uh, off the surface of the water. And so, um, you know, when I was a lifeguard sitting by that pool, I'd be sitting in my chair, and I realized, like, how I could avoid the boredom when I was watching that pool. So I got a bunch of quarters. I put these quarters in my fanny pack, and I would, like, uh, whenever there were, like, a bunch of little boys swimming in that pool, I'd be like, hey, guys, guys, come here. And they'd, like... Do you like that cold, like shivery, like walk, you know? Like, you know, when little kids are wet and cold and they walk up and they're just like standing there shivering. You can all picture it perfectly and half their body's purple and they're just like shivering. And I'm like, guys, I got some quarters in my fanny pack for you. If you do a belly flop off the low dive, I'll give you one quarter. If you do belly flop off the high dive, I'll give you 50 cents. And they're like, oh. I could buy like two popsicles in the vending machine. So like the first kid, he goes up, he doesn't go for the low dive, he goes straight for the high dive. And the first kid to do it, he's like a meaty kid, you know? So I'm like, oh, he'll be fine, he'll survive. And um, he's like, because he's got some padding. And so, I mean, he's, yeah. So he goes up to the high dive and just confidently walks up to the edge, lays out into this beautiful belly flop, empties half the pool, and I'm like, that was awesome. He comes over to me, and I give him his 50 cents. I was like, you earned it, bud. And the second kid comes up, and he also is going to go for the high dive, obviously. 
So he goes up for the high dive. But the problem is, this kid is like negative 4% body fat. He's like, imagine like this mic stand, like going up the ladder to the high dive. And I'm like, I don't know about this kid. He has zero padding. Like, so, so I worry about him. And of course, he's like ultra shivering. So he walks, goes up to the high dive, walks to the edge, and he's like shivering like the whole way down the pool. And he just kind of like tilts forward off the edge of the diving board, like drifts down like this kind of. <laughs> um, but then he hits the water super hard. And again, zero padding on this kid. And so he hits the water and then just kind of lays there for a little bit like this, just like. <laughs> and of course, me as the lifeguard, what do I do? I stand up. I'm getting ready. I'm like, I might have to go in for a third time to save this kid. <laughs> and, um, and then like after a couple seconds, he just like jerks back to life and like doggy paddles to the edge of the pool, like pukes in the drain. And then just like walks over to my lifeguard stand and just goes like this. <laughs> and I was like, all right, bud, here's 75 cents. You earned it. And I just felt bad. I was like, please don't sue me in the pool and stuff. So I was a bad lifeguard. And, and the, the problem is, the problem is a lot of us have that exact same view of God, where we think that, um, like, God is over there, and he's kind of watching, and like, if I really need him, he'll jump in with me, and he'll save me, and he'll pull me out of whatever I get myself into, but for the most part, he's kind of far away. He's kind of just up there observing, and maybe, maybe if you even really have a really twisted view of God, he's watching, he's kind of like laughing at your pain, like, ha, 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 oh, I paid him to do belly flops, <laughs> right? Like, Maybe you have that view of God where it's like, I don't know what I'm going through in life. I don't know where I am, but God's up there. He's watching. He's distant. He's removed. And maybe sometimes he'll jump into the water, right? So the question is, which God do you believe in? Do you believe in that kind of God? Or do you believe in the kind of God who we're going to look at today in Genesis? Or maybe... Maybe you even have uh, a, one of the Babylonian or Sumerian views of God. Because today we're going to talk about the creation and what we learn about God when we look at the first two verses of the Bible. And I know that when I say that, when I say creation, when I say Genesis, some of you, like the theology nerds in the room, go like, uh-oh, little like, red flags come up in your head, and you're like, uh-oh, What's he going to say? Which stance is he going to take? Is it like literal seven-day creation? Is it young earth creation? Is it 13.3 billion years old? Like, you know, and you're like, uh-oh, you better not say the wrong thing. If Mr. Purple Shirt says the wrong thing, then I'm going to have to write an email to South after this. You know, like, so, so just put those thoughts to the side. We're not going to address those issues. So just like, if, if you have a little switch in your head, just turn it off. And just like focus on what we are talking about, which is the nature of God that we see in Genesis. And we're going to look at one of the ways you can read Genesis 1, which is as a polemic. We'll get there in a second. But first, we're going to look at uh, the Enuma Elish. The Enuma, everyone say Enuma Elish. We're going, to, we're going to learn some fun words today. So the Enuma Elish is the Babylonian creation story. Babylonian creation story. It was written about 1800 B.C. 
So about 1,800 years before Jesus walked the earth, and it's about uh, four or 500 years before Genesis was written down. So this predates Genesis by hundreds of years, okay? So for hundreds and hundreds of years, this is how people saw their gods, okay? And the Enuma Elish is really thick. Our creation story takes up like one page. Theirs is pages and pages and pages, and I've been reading it lately, and it's fascinating, the things that you learn that they believed about their gods. So let's look at it. Let's look at what they believed about their gods. Prior to the creation of the universe, there's violence. There's multiple gods, and what are they doing before the universe is created? They're fighting. They're killing each other. It's insane. Ea, however you say his name, Ea, Ea, I don't know how to pronounce it, killed Apsu, and from the corpse of Apsu came Marduk, who eventually killed Tiamat. So Marduk, uh, if, you, if you've studied history in this era at all, you might be familiar with that name, Marduk. Uh, he was like the um, overall, like the god of everything, the god of literally everything. And it's interesting that he was created from two other gods, and he was created out of death. So Ea kills another god, and from that god's body comes Marduk, who's the god of everything. Are you guys tracking with me so far? And then Tiamat is like this female water serpent type god, and she represents chaos. She is the personification of primordial chaos and unformed like potential pre-creation. So she's like an embodiment of chaos, okay? And the way, uh, we'll go to the next slide and actually just read it. So this is from the Enuma Elish. Uh, these are actual lines from it. Marduk encircled Tiamat, the chaos goddess, with his net, blew her up with his winds, and shoots an arrow which pierced her belly, split her down the middle, and slit her heart. Kind of graphic, right? So imagine that that was your creation story. Imagine that for hundreds of years, your people believed this about your gods, about your creation. Everything that we see, everything that exists in the world came from not the breath of God, not the words of God, not a creative God, but it came from violence, came from death. How would you feel thinking about those gods? And the, the interesting thing, too, is that this has political con connotations. They wanted the people in those times to believe these stories because the king of Babylon or the king of Sumer or whichever nation it was, was the embodiment in human form of Marduk. So it's like, if you disobey the human god, who are you also, sorry, the human king, who are you also disobeying? You're disobeying Marduk. And what kind of god is Marduk? Well, he's violent. He likes to kill people. He came out of a dead body, and all he wants to do is kill more people. How do you think you're going to live in a society like that? What kind of thoughts are you going to have about your gods in that civilization? You're going to be filled with fear. You're not going to want to mess up. You're just going to stay in your place in society and do exactly as you're told because the gods are angry, the gods are violent, the gods are unpredictable, chaotic, easily triggered, and they're going to slice you open like he sliced open Tiamat. And then uh, they talk about how humans were created in the next verse. Then Ea, remember that god, however you say it, 
uh, took Kingu, a different god, cut his arteries, and made mankind from his blood. Ea then imposes the toil of the gods upon mankind. So, Genesis, men, humans are made from what? The breath of God, right? He makes them in his image. And then later, God partners with them to work the ground, to, to, to like move creation forward, to progress. God's like, hey, here's this garden, here's this creation I gave you. Let's work on it together because it's not finished. There's more work to be done on it. You can partner with me because, remember, does God ever like kill the chaos? We'll come back to that in a second. But no, he doesn't. He leaves it. So to be worked, to be cultivated. So he partners with man. But in the Enuma Elish, man comes from blood because someone else was killed. Surprise, right? Uh, The gods are chaotic, violent, destructive. Creation, born from death. And humans, they're made for what? To toil for the gods. And you better not mess up or the gods will be angry with you too. So the question is, which God do you believe in? Do you believe in a God that you have to toil for or they'll be mad at you? Do you believe in the lifeguard God? He's over there. He's not with me in the water, in my pain. He's over there. Maybe if I need him, he'll jump in. Or do you believe in the third type of God, which is the type of God we see at the very beginning of the Bible? So remember, this story, the story of Genesis is written down about 1300, maybe 1000 BC. And, and from the very first verse, you notice some differences. So Genesis 1.1, you're probably familiar with it. It says, in the beginning, God did what? Did he kill? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, right? So what's the first thing we see God do? The first thing we see God do is create. He doesn't kill. He doesn't get angry. He doesn't slice people open. Um, one of the first things we see Marduk do is create weapons. Why? So he can go and kill Tiamat, the goddess of chaos. It's such a paradigm shift. Like, hey, this god isn't violent. He's not angry. He's creative. And here's how he creates. And a lot of scholars think that the first verse of Genesis isn't so much like a statement as much as a title. So if you're a Hebrew scholar, sometimes you see this and it's like, this is the title of everything that's going to happen in the next two chapters, right? So in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. How did he do that? Well, let's look at it. And so, in my opinion, the first verse of the Bible is really verse 2, Genesis 1, verse 2, which says this. How did God create? Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. And God said, and cut there. We're going to stop it before it gets controversial. So, um, so, so um, yeah, no emails after this sermon. So, so there's a lot happening. This is my favorite verse in the whole Bible. And they told me I could preach on anything I wanted to. And I was like, they're like, which verse are you going to preach on? And I said the second one. And so, so this is it. Um, But there's so much happening here. So we already talked about kind of what the Babylonians and the Sumerians believed about their gods. And in the first two verses of our Bible, we see such a radical shift. So let's look at it. We're going to learn three Hebrew words today, okay? So the first one 
is tohu vavohu. Can everyone say that? Okay. Now, the problem is you guys all said it like English speakers. When you speak Hebrew, you have to pretend like you're hacking something up, okay? So, like, tohu vavohu, right? With the H's, right? Okay, try it again. Tohu vavohu. Good. Better, better. Um, try not to get the person in front of you too much. But, but this word, it means, uh, it's a phrase. It means wild and waste. Wild and waste. Or chaos. And so, so before anything is made, it doesn't say God spoke and out of nothing everything came. The actual image that we see happening in Genesis 1 is God takes the chaos, he takes the wild and waste, this unformed matter, the, the, the image it actually gives us is the waters, and he begins taking this chaos and forming it into something orderly. So the image it uses is water, right? And water, just like this, is, is very much um, a paradox because it is full of endless potential and chaotic, right? Water is the source of all life. Human civilization always settles down near water. Every living thing needs water to live. But at the same time, water is also terrifying and chaotic and destructive, right? So we have pictures like this, like like this lighthouse guy. If you look closely, there's a guy right there. And how many of us would rather die than be that guy? I know I would. I'm like, like it just makes me curl up in my soul when I see a picture like this. And you're like, ugh. Like, how is he just standing there just chilling? And there's this, like, chaotic, torrential wave, right? It's like, the wave is, like, angry looking. Like, it's out to get him. Or like surfers like this, when they ride these like massive waves. Again, how many of you would like rather kick a steel pole with your shin than be this guy, right? Like in that water, because it's like, if one molecule of my body like throws me off, I'm just dead in this like, right? So you can see why ancient people saw water as like the symbol of chaos. So when you, when you think water in the ancient mindset, we think chaos or this picture in my own life, the place that always comes to my mind when I think of, like, water as chaos, there's this place in Guatemala called uh, Samuk Champe, and it's an underground river. And so you can walk to the, the mouth of this river where it goes underground. And see, there's a person up here for, for scale. So it's a huge, massive river. And the next picture, you see kind of, like, how scary it is. Like, it goes underground. And I stood up here, like, looking down into it, and I was just thinking, like, imagine being, like, tripping over, falling into this water. And I was like, someone in history probably has, you know, fallen in, and you get sucked. Imagine being sucked into an underground river, and it's black, right? There's darkness, and you're just, like, bouncing around the walls of this underground river for a mile until it spits you out the other side. I was like... Oh, it's so terrifying to think about. And I just stood there for like 10 minutes just imagining how terrifying that was. So that's the image that we have because there's darkness, right? And there's the spirit hovering over the surface of the deep. So there's the waters. And so another thing that we have to understand as like 21st century Americans is, is what they mean when they, when they talk about the waters and God dividing the waters. Because waters are the symbol for chaos, but it helps us if we understand 
what's called the ancient cosmology. So there's this visual Thomas will put up for us. So as an ancient person, remember, you don't have telescopes. You don't have uh, satellites. You've never had rocket ships. You've never gone up and, like, touched the clouds, right? All you're doing is you're standing on Earth and observing what you see. So logically, you stand on the Earth. And what happens if you walk far enough in any direction? What do you hit? Water. Eventually, you hit water. So it's kind of like Earth is surrounded by water, but there's more. Because you look up, and what color is the sky? Well, it's blue. And what sometimes falls from the sky? More water. So, so what they thought was, okay, so there's Earth, and then there's water, and then God, in Genesis 1, later on, it says God separated the waters. We read that, and we're like, what on earth is he talking about? We're just going to skip over it. But, um, but what he's talking about is God separates the water above, because, see, there's waters above, because otherwise, how else would water fall from the sky? Um, and then above that is where God lived. And then you also have these things that they don't really know what they are, the moon, the stars, the sun, right? They looked up, and they just saw these things, and they write down everything as they observe. So <clears throat> we have the chaotic waters, and before everything was ordered, everything was water. Everything was chaos. Everything is this unformed, chaotic water, but it's also bursting with potential life force, right? So that's the word. Anyone remember the Hebrew word? Okay, besides Pastor Aaron. Tohu vavohu, right? Tohu vavohu, the wild and waste, the chaos. And so the next word we see, the next word we're going to learn together is ruach. Everyone say ruach. Yeah, you're getting the throat thing now. Good. Yeah, ruach. And in Hebrew, this word is so interesting. This word's interesting because it can either mean spirit, it can also mean wind, and it can also mean breath. So in Hebrew, the word is ruach Elohim, right? Ruach Elohim. And that can either mean spirit of God, it can mean wind of God, or breath of God. And all those things are, are doing what? They're fluttering, they're hovering, they're moving around the earth, which at that time, again, is just chaotic waters, Okay, so that's the image we have. And to, to get the full picture, the most interesting part, in my opinion, is this third word, which is Rahab. Rahab, right? Um, Rahab is the word for hover, flutter, or move. And this word appears one other place in the Bible, in Deuteronomy 32. And this is where it gets really interesting. In Deuteronomy 32, the writer is describing a mother eagle hovering over her young. So it says, like an eagle that stirs up its nest and what hovers over its young that spreads its wings to catch them and carries them aloft. So it's such an interesting word picture because remember, Hebrew is a very rich language. They love imagery and there's like all sorts of wordplay and connection going on that we miss if we read it just in English. But the writer of Genesis is saying that the Spirit of God was doing what? It was hovering like a mother bird. And what does a mother bird do when it hovers over its young? It says like, hey, rise up. Hey, come to life. Hey, take flight and come out of the nest. And I believe you can do it. And just picture this mother bird 
hovering over her young, flapping her wings over the young. And what happens if a little baby bird jumps out of the nest and can't quite fly yet and falls? It says it spreads its wings to catch them and to carry them, right? So the image that we see is that the Spirit of God is hovering over this chaotic mess, over the waters, and it's saying what? It's saying, hey, rise up, take flight, come to life. And it's okay if you like take a stab at it and you mess up because I'm here for you. I'm going to fly under you and catch you in case you mess up. In case you can't carry yourself, I'm going to carry you. So this breath, this wind, the invisible spirit of God is hovering over the chaos, over the waters pre-creation. So can we just pause for a second and think about how vastly different this is than the Babylonian view of gods? So think about the Enuma Elish. The gods are angry, violent, chaotic, unpredictable. How does he create the world, Marduk? He creates it by killing Tiamat, the goddess of chaos. In Genesis, how does he create the world, God? The first thing we see that God does is God created. Next verse, what's the Spirit of God doing? Hovering, inviting this unformed chaos, the waters, to become orderly, to make something with themselves, to to come to life, to take on some form of order and of life. And God doesn't then uh, just start like saying like, now, you did it wrong. No, 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 right? He, he invites it to life and says, if you mess up, I'll still catch you. And how does God go about the creating? We saw the first part of that. It says, and God said. And God said. He speaks it into life, right? And when we speak, we're using what? Breath and words and meaning. So the breath of God is what creates the life that becomes the rest of the universe. And does God ever destroy water? Does he get rid of water? He says, nope, this has got to go. No, he just puts it in its proper place. He separates the water. He says, you go here, you go here, birds go here, fish go here, right? He starts taking the chaos and forming them and putting them in such a way that they function, that they create life, that they, they work together. Why? Because God invited it. And what does God say after every day of creation when he's creating? It is, it's good. He's speaking words of goodness over this creation. Okay, now for the really cool part. You guys ready to have your minds blown? I love it, I love it, I love it. Okay, so we have that picture of in Genesis, that's how God created the world, and then what? Then what happens? Then a bunch of stuff happens. Fast forward to Genesis 9. Noah has been on the ark for 150 days, right? What does he send out to go see if there's dry land? A bird. So do you think that maybe people read that story and they say, hey, this was a couple chapters ago. We also saw something fluttering over the waters saying, hey, there's something new happening here. There's this new type of creation. Because in the Noah account, it's kind of like all of creation is destroyed and starts over. So there's, there's an image of the dove symbolizing like flying over the waters, creation kind of restarts. But fast forward 
like a thousand years, two thousand years, however long. We're not going to argue about it. Fast forward a bit to Jesus' days. What's the first thing Jesus does when he begins his ministry on earth? It's in all three synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. They thought this was so important, we have to put it in all of our gospels. And we, as Americans, often just glaze right over it because we're like, I don't understand this. Why is this important, right? The baptism of Jesus. What happens at the baptism? Let's look at it. It's so interesting. Mark 1. Mark 1, 9 through 11. Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan, the Jordan River. Rivers are made of what? Okay. Uh, Just as Jesus was coming up out of the water, he saw heaven being torn open and the spirit, spirit, ruach, descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, you are my son, whom I love, with you I am well pleased. Do we see any similarities between this and Genesis 1? Do we see that maybe if you're a Jewish person in the first century and you're reading these Gospels, you say, hold up, hold up, hold up, hold up. This sounds really familiar. It's, it's almost like the writers of the Gospel are saying, hey, you guys, Something really big is happening, and it's something as big as the creation of the entire universe, right? Because what do we have? We have the Spirit coming down as a bird and hovering over what? Water. And we have a voice from heaven speaking what? Goodness and blessing over the Son, Jesus. But here, we actually have a third party enter into the picture. And in this third party, we have, this, we have God speaking We have the Spirit coming down and hovering over the water, but we also have Jesus who does what? Comes into the water. He comes into the chaotic mess that is our world, that is creation. So it's kind of like the lifeguard, you know, like standing on the side, decides to actually jump in and join them in the pool. Jesus decides to get some skin in the game. He enters into the water. And I think that's part of why the baptism of Jesus is so important, because God is no longer above. God is no longer just hovering over. God is in the water with us. God is in the chaos with us. And that changes everything. Can you ever imagine those Babylonian gods entering into the lives of the humans that they made as their slaves? No, it's so backwards. So again, I ask you, what kind of God do you believe in? Which God do you believe in? Do you believe in this kind of God that the Bible teaches from the first verse all the way through the end, a God who speaks goodness over us? A God who hovers over us and invites us to new life. And a God who not only just hovers, but entered into the waters 2,000 years ago and joined us in the chaotic mess that is our lives, right? There's this uh, monk from the Middle Ages, Guiglio, Guiglo, I forget, Guijo, Guigo. I don't know, it's kind of fun. We're learning the fun words today, right? He says... <laughs> He says, I become aware, Lord, that the world of my own spirit is still formless and void, and that darkness still covers the face of this abyss. 
It is truly in a state of confusion, a kind of dark and terrifying chaos, knowing nothing of its own end or of its own origin or of what sort of being it is. That is how my soul is, my God. That is how my soul is, a wasteland, empty and formless, and darkness is upon the face of the abyss. But the abyss that is my spirit cries out to you, Lord, asking you to make a new heaven and a new earth of me too. We participate with God in this, right? We have the option. We can be like Frederick Nietzsche. Do we have any Nietzsche fans in here? I love Frederick Nietzsche. He's awesome. But he has this quote where he says, um, if you stare too long into the abyss, the abyss stares back at you, and you lose hope, and you enter into that nothingness, and you, you join the chaos. You just, well, this is all there is. Well, there's darkness. Well, there's chaos. The abyss stares back at you. And some people... Enter into that. You lose hope. You give up. But that's not the kind of life that the Bible calls us to. The Bible calls us to actually, like, like the monk said, to like make something new of me. Because remember, the chaos is also full of potential. The chaos, it might seem chaotic and it might seem dark in the moment, but God is a God who creates, who hovers, who says, hey, I'm going to take this chaos and make something good out of it. And he can make something good out of all of us, too. So there's the story of this, this woman named Sunshine Mary. And she, she was an elderly lady uh, a couple decades ago. And she, uh, she had, like, circulation problems later in her life. Her blood wasn't circulating properly. And she had to go to get checked into the hospital because her body just wasn't operating right, and, and the doctor came to her one day, and he said, so, so your hand isn't receiving enough blood, and I'm not a scientist, but I don't know, but he said, uh, we're going to have to amputate your hand to save your life. She said, okay, um, but the thing you have to know about Sunshine Mary is she got that nickname because she was in the hospital day after day after day. The nurses and the doctors would pass by her room, and without fail, Sunshine Mary was always singing. She was always singing praises to God, just constantly praising God, singing old hymns, just constantly joyful. And the doctor gives her this news, and you know what changed? Nothing. Because she just kept singing. They amputated her hand. A week or two later, the doctor comes back. He says, your condition is not improving. We're actually going to have to amputate your whole arm. So she loses her whole arm. You know what changes in her spirit, in her mind? Nothing. Months go by, and eventually, little by little, they're having to amputate more and more of her. They amputate her feet, and then her legs, and then her hand, and her other arm. So she is literally falling apart. Her body is deteriorating and dying quickly, but her spirit keeps singing. She never stopped singing. And finally, the chaplain at the hospital just got so intrigued by Sunshine Mary, he had to go in, he sits by her bedside, and he says, I have to know, you don't have any limbs left, your body is shutting down, and yet you're perpetually joyful. How is that possible? And Sunshine Mary just looks at him, and she says, if you don't know my joy, you don't know my Jesus. If you don't know my joy, you don't know my Jesus. 
Because even though her life was falling apart, even though Sunshine Mary couldn't necessarily see how any good could come out of this, and it seemed chaotic, and it seemed dark, and it seemed like there was no hope whatsoever for her, for her future, she held on to the hope that Jesus was up to something better. She held on to the hope that Jesus had something better in the future for her, that he wasn't done with his creating, with his breathing over her, with his fluttering over her, right? And she, had, she held on to that hope even when everything seemed chaotic. And recently in my own family, two weeks ago, one of my cousins passed away at a really young age. Uh, it was really unexpected. He passed away. And so my family for the past two weeks has really been in a state of chaos as well. And we've been like asking God, what the heck? Why would this happen to my cousin? Why would, why would you take him away from us so soon? We all loved him. He was a phenomenal guy. And, and my family has been dealing with this question of why? Where is God in this death? Where is God in this loss? And it feels like we're in a season of chaos where nothing is making sense. Like that shouldn't be the way that it is. But at the funeral, his father, my uncle, stood up. And when he was talking about my family, my uncle said, we're grieving. I've lost my son. People in here have lost a friend, brother, relative. But God has not abandoned us. Even when it's this dark, even when things feel this chaotic, it's out of control and we're cursing God. We're saying, why is it like this? My family believes God hasn't abandoned us. That even if it feels this chaotic, that God is still up to something, that something is going on, and he can make something beautiful and lively out of this dark and chaotic situation. And the same is true for every single one of us. You might not be in one of those seasons right now. You might be in one of those seasons where everything feels good and you're like, hey, I'm kind of happy with how my life is going. But I can tell you, you live long enough and you're gonna hit one of those seasons eventually. And then things will get, get, get better and you hit another one of those seasons. And how do you respond when that happens, when things get chaotic and dark? Do you respond by saying, I'm gazing into the abyss and the abyss is gazing back at me. I'm losing hope. There is no God. Or the gods are angry. The gods are far off. Or do you believe in a God who speaks goodness over you? He sees the goodness and the potential in you and he speaks love and he's proud of you and he speaks love. And do you believe in the spirit that hovers over you and says, hey, I'm not done with you yet. There's potential in you still. Rise up. Come out of the nest. And if you mess up, I'm going to catch you. It's okay. What kind of God do you believe in? And then do you believe in a God who not only watches from afar, but he gets in the water with you? Jesus entered into the water. Jesus entered into the chaos of our lives. And he says, hey, I am with you. I am Emmanuel, God, with you. So when you're walking through the darkness and the chaos, you're not alone. When they told me to preach on whatever I wanted, I said, and I picked this, they said, why that verse? And I said, because we always need a reminder, because the world is always chaotic, because our lives are always chaotic, and everything always feels like it's falling apart, especially today, but also especially every day. 
in human history, right? We need that reminder that God still hovers over the water today. And he hasn't left us just to exist chaotically. He calls us. And so we're going to take communion right now. And the super cool thing about this, one of the many super cool things, is in the Old Testament, God says, don't eat meat with the lifeblood still in it. Part of the reason for that is because the pagan tradition said, if you drink the blood of an animal, you put that animal's spirit inside of you. So the pagans, before they go into battle, they would drink lion's blood or tiger's blood and think it made them more ferocious because they're taking the spirit of the lion, right? The spirit is in the blood. They said, don't drink the blood. Don't eat meat with blood still in it. It flips in the New Testament. You know what Jesus says? He says, here's my body and my blood. Do what? Take it inside of you. Why? Because the spirit is in the blood. So we take this today and we remember Jesus shed his blood for us. And symbolically, when we take this and we put it inside of us, it's like we're saying, I want that same spirit of Jesus to be inside of me too. I don't want him just hovering over me anymore. I actually want him inside of me, guiding me, calling me to new life, calling me to live in new and creative ways. Even when it seems chaotic and hopeless and dark, the spirit is still hovering. The spirit is inside of us. So I invite you to come forward and then hold the elements and we'll take them all together at the end. If God is working in your life through this ministry, join us in reaching others by partnering with us. You can give online at southfellowship.org give or on the South Fellowship Church app. Thanks again for listening and have a great rest of your day.